Hello, hosh geldiniz. This is the addendum, the extra part of uh, Drawing Core Podcast number 18. So if you're thinking this is the new podcast, you're not wrong. But also there is uh, there is another episode 18 in which we talk about Susan Sontag's essays on style and against interpretation. And this podcast is um, I'm, I've, I've recorded a, like a, an audio version of Against Interpretation, her essay from 1965. So it gives the kind of context for some of the ramblings in the episode 18 part A. So, and also given the fact that um, the essay is Against Interpretation, all my ramblings, uh, perhaps not what Susan would have wanted um, to come out of someone who's read her essay um, it's more maybe that's too much of an interpretation and so in that spirit here we reproduce the original essay so there's this added dimension of um, rather than altering the text in our interpretation we are uh, re- re- representing the text um, and then talking around it so I hope that's in itself interesting so yes here in full it's not overly complex to listen to it's uh, fairly long but um uh, yeah enjoy it if you wish to listen to it okay there are two quotes at the beginning of against interpretation one from willem de kooning in an interview who says content is a glimpse of something an encounter like a flash it's very tiny very tiny content and Oscar Wilde in a letter who says it is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances the mystery of the world is the visible not the invisible against interpretation by Susan Sontag one The earliest experience of art must have been that it was incantatory, magical. Art was an instrument of ritual. See, for example, the paintings in the caves at Lascaux, Altamira, Niau, La Pasiega, etc. The earliest theory of art, that of Greek philosophers, proposed that art was mimesis, imitation of reality. It is at this point that the peculiar question of the value of art arose. For the mimetic theory, by its very terms, challenges art to justify itself. Plato, who proposed the theory, seems to have done so in order to rule that the value of art is dubious. Since he considered ordinary material things as themselves mimetic objects, imitations of transcendent forms or structures, even the best painting of a bed would only be an imitation of an imitation. For Plato, art is neither particularly useful, the painting of a bed is no good to sleep on, nor, in the strict sense, true. And Aristotle's arguments in defence of art do not really challenge Plato's view that all art is an elaborate trompe-lui, and therefore a lie. But he does dispute Plato's idea that art is useless. Lie or not, art has a certain value according to Aristotle because it is a form of therapy. 
Art is useful after all, he counters, medicinally useful in that it arouses and purges dangerous emotions. In Plato and Aristotle, the mimetic theory of art goes hand in hand with the assumption that art is always figurative. But advocates of the mimetic theory need not close their eyes to decorative and abstract art. The fallacy that art is necessarily a realism can be modified or scrapped without ever moving outside the problems delimited by the mimetic theory. The fact is, all Western consciousness of and reflection upon art have remained within the confines staked out by the Greek theory of art as mimesis or representation. It is through this theory that art as such, above and beyond given works of art, becomes problematic, in need of defence. And it is the defence of art which gives birth to the odd vision by which something we have learned to call form is separated off from something we have learned to call content, and to the well-intentioned move which makes content essential and form accessory. Even in modern times, when most artists and critics have discarded the theory of art as representation of an outer reality in favour of the theory of art as subjective expression, the main feature of the mimetic theory persists. Whether we conceive of the work of art on the model of a picture, art as a picture of reality, or on the model of a statement, art as the statement of the artist, content still comes first. The content may have changed, it may now be less figurative, less lucidly realistic, but it is still assumed that a work of art is its content, or, as it's usually put today, that a work of art by definition says something. What X is saying is da da da, what X is trying to say is da da da, what X said is da da da, etc. etc. None of us can ever retrieve that innocence before all theory, when art knew no need to justify itself, when one did not ask of a work of art what it said, because one knew or thought one knew what it did. From now to the end of consciousness, we are stuck with the task of defending art. We can only quarrel with one or another means of defence. Indeed, we have an obligation to overthrow any means of defending and justifying art which becomes particularly obtuse or onerous or insensitive to contemporary needs and practice. This is the case today with the very idea of content itself. Whatever it may have been in the past, the idea of content today is mainly a hindrance, a nuisance, a subtle or not so subtle philistinism. Although the actual developments in many arts may seem to be leading us away from the idea that a work of art is primarily its content, the idea still exerts an extraordinary hegemony. I want to suggest that this is because the idea is now perpetuated in the guise of a certain way of encountering works of art thoroughly ingrained amongst people who take any of the arts seriously. What the overemphasis on the idea of content entails is the perennial, never consummated project of interpretation. And conversely, it is the habit of approaching works of art in order to interpret them that sustains the fancy that there is really such a thing as the content of a work of art. Three. 
Of course, I don't mean interpretation in the broadest sense, the sense in which Nietzsche rightly says, there are no facts, only interpretations. By interpretation, I mean here a conscious act of the mind which illustrates a certain code, certain rules of interpretation. Directed to art, interpretation means plucking a set of elements, the X, the Y, the Z and so forth, from the whole work. The task of interpretation is virtually one of translation. The interpreter says, look, don't you see that X is really, or really means A? that Y is really B, that Z is really C. What situation could prompt this curious project for transforming a text? History gives us the materials for an answer. Interpretation first appears in the culture of late classical antiquity, when the power and credibility of myth had been broken by the realistic view of the world introduced by scientific enlightenment. Once, the question that haunts post-mythic consciousness, that of the seemliness of religious symbols, has been asked. The ancient texts were, in their pristine form, no longer acceptable. Then interpretation was summoned to reconcile the ancient texts to modern demands. Thus, the Stoics, to accord with their view that the gods had to be moral, allegorized away the rude features of Zeus and his boisterous clan in Homer's epics. What Homer really designated by the adultery of Zeus with Leto, they explained, was the union between power and wisdom. In the same vein, Philo of Alexandria interpreted the literal historical narratives of the Hebrew Bible as spiritual paradigms. The story of the exodus from Egypt, the wandering in the desert for 40 years, and the entry into the promised land, said Philo, was really an allegory of the individual's soul's emancipation, tribulations, and final deliverance. Interpretation thus presupposes a discrepancy between the clear meaning of the text and the demands of later readers. It seeks to resolve that discrepancy. The situation is that for some reason a text has become unacceptable, yet it cannot be discarded. Interpretation is a radical strategy for conserving an old text, which is thought too precious to repudiate by revamping it. The interpreter, without actually erasing or rewriting the text, is altering it. But he can't admit to doing this. He claims to be only making it intelligible by disclosing its true meaning. However far the interpreters alter the text, another notorious example is the rabbinic and Christian spiritual interpretations of the clearly erotic Song of Songs, they must claim to be reading off a sense that is already there. Interpretation in our own time, however, is even more complex, for the contemporary zeal for the project of interpretation is often prompted not by piety towards a troublesome text, which may conceal an aggression, but by an open aggressiveness, an overt contempt for appearances. The old style of interpretation was insistent but respectful. It erected another meaning on top of the literal one. The modern style of interpretation excavates, and as it excavates, destroys. It digs behind the text to find a subtext which is the true one. The most celebrated and influential modern doctrines, those of Marx and Freud, actually amount 
to elaborate systems of hermeneutics, aggressive and impious theories of interpretation. All observable phenomena are bracketed in Freud's phrase as manifest content. This manifest content must be probed and pushed aside to find the true meaning, the latent content beneath. For Marx, social events like revolutions and wars, for Freud, the events of individual lives, like neurotic symptoms and slips of the tongue, as well as texts, like a dream or a work of art, are all treated as occasions for interpretation. According to Marx and Freud, these events only seem to be intelligible. Actually, they have no meaning without interpretation. To understand is to interpret, and to interpret is to restate the phenomenon, in effect, to find an equivalent for it. Thus, interpretation is not, as most people assume, an absolute value, a gesture of mind situated in some timeless realm of capabilities. Interpretation must itself be evaluated within a historical view of human consciousness. In some cultural contexts, interpretation is a liberating act. It is a means of revising, of transvaluing, of escaping the dead past. In other cultural contexts, it is reactionary, impertinent cowardly, stifling. Four. Today is such a time when the project of interpretation is largely reactionary and stifling. Like the fumes of the automobile and of heavy industry which befoul the urban atmosphere, the effusion of interpretations of art today poisons our sensibilities. In a culture whose already classical dilemma is the hypertrophy of the intellect at the expense of energy and sensual capability, interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. Even more, it is the revenge of the intellect upon the world. To interpret is to impoverish, to deplete the world, in order to set up a shadow world of meanings. It is to turn the world into this world, this world as if there were any other. The world, our world, is depleted, impoverished enough. Away with all duplicates of it until we again experience more immediately what we have. Five. In most modern instances, interpretation amounts to the Philistine refusal to leave the work of art alone. Real art has the capacity to make us nervous. By reducing the work of art to its content and then interpreting that, one tames the work of art. Interpretation makes art manageable, conformable. This philistinism of interpretation is more rife in literature than in any other art. For decades now, literary critics have understood it to be their task to translate the elements of the poem or play or novel or story into something else. Sometimes a writer will be so uneasy before the naked power of his art that he will install within the work itself, albeit with a little shyness, a touch of the good taste of irony, the clear and explicit interpretation of it. Thomas Mann is an example of such an over-cooperative author. In the case of more stubborn authors, the critic is only too happy to perform the job. The work of Kafka, for example, has been sub subject subjected 
to a mass ravishment by no less than three armies of interpreters. Those who read Kafka as a social allegory see case studies of the frustrations and insanity of modern bureaucracy and its ultimate issuance in the totalitarian state. Those who read Kafka as a psychoanalytic allegory see desperate revelations of Kafka's fear of his father, his castration anxieties, his sense of his own impotence, his thraldom to his dreams. Those who read Kafka as a religious allegory explain that K in the castle is trying to gain access to heaven, that Joseph K in the trial is being judged by the inexorable and mysterious justice of God. Another over that has attracted interpreters like leeches is that of Samuel Beckett. Beckett's delicate dramas of the withdrawn consciousness, pared down to essentials, cut off, often represented as physically immobilized, are read as a statement about modern man's alienation from meaning or from God, or as an allegory of psychopathy. Proust, Joyce, Faulkner, Rilke, Lawrence, Gide, one could go on citing author after author. The list is endless of those around whom thick encrustations of interpretation have taken hold. But it should be noted that interpretation is not simply the compliment that mediocrity pays to genius. It is indeed the modern way of understanding something and is applied to works of every quality. Thus, in the notes that Elia Kazan published on his production of A Streetcar Named Desire, it becomes clear that, in order to direct the play, Kazan had to discover that Stanley Kowalski represented the sensual and vengeful barbarism that was engulfing our culture, while Blanche Dubois was Western civilization, poetry, delicate apparel, dim lighting, refined feelings, and all, though a little the worse for wear, to be sure. Tennessee Williams's forceful psychological melodrama now became intelligible. It was about something, about the decline of Western civilization. Apparently, were it to go on being a play about a handsome brute named Stanley Kowalski and a faded Manji Bell named Blanche Dubois, it would not be manageable. Six. It doesn't matter whether artists intend or don't intend for their works to be interpreted. Perhaps Tennessee Williams thinks Streetcar is about what Kazan thinks it to be about. It may be that Cocteau, in the blood of a poet and in Orpheus, wanted the elaborate readings which have been given to these films in terms of Freudian symbolism and social critique. But the merit of these works certainly lies elsewhere than in their meanings. Indeed, it is precisely to the extent that Williams's play and Cocteau's films do suggest these pretentious meanings that they are defective, false, contrived, or lacking in conviction. From interviews, it appears that Resne and Robert Grillet consciously designed last year at Marienbad to accommodate a multiplicity of equally plausible interpretations. But the temptation to interpret Marienbad should be resisted. What matters in Marienbad is the pure, untranslatable, sensuous immediacy of some of its images and its rigorous, if narrow, solutions to certain problems of cinematic form. Again, Ingmar Bergman may have meant the tank rumbling down the empty night street in the silence as a phallic symbol, but if he did it was a foolish thought. 
Never trust the teller, trust the tale, said Lawrence. Taken as a brute object, as an immediate sensory equivalent for the mysterious abrupt armoured happenings going on inside the hotel, that sequence of the tank is the most striking moment in the film. Those who reach for a Freudian interpretation of the tank are only expressing their lack of response to what there is on the screen. It is always the case that interpretation of this type indicates a dissatisfaction, conscious or unconscious, with the work, a wish to replace it by something else. Interpretation based on the highly dubious theory that a work of art is composed of items of content violates art. It makes art into an article for use, for arrangement into a mental scheme of categories. 7. Interpretation does not, of course, always prevail. In fact, a great deal of today's art may be understood as motivated by a flight from interpretation. To avoid interpretation, art may become parody, or it may become abstract, or it may become merely decorative, or it may become non-art. The flight from interpretation seems particularly a feature of modern painting. Abstract painting is the attempt to have, in the ordinary sense, no content. Since there is no content, there can be no interpretation. Pop art works by the opposite means to the same result, using a content so blatant, so what it is, it too ends up by being uninterpretable. A great deal of modern poetry as well, starting from the great experiments of French poetry, including the movement that is misleadingly called symbolism, to put silence into poems and to reinstate the magic of the word has escaped from the rough grip of interpretation. The most recent revolution in contemporary taste in poetry, the revolution that has deposed Eliot and elevated Pound, represents a turning away from content in poetry in the old sense and impatience with what made modern poetry prey to the zeal of interpreters. I'm speaking mainly of the situation in America, of course. Interpretation runs rampant here in those arts with a feeble and negligible avant-garde, fiction and the drama. Most American novelists and playwrights are really either journalists or gentlemen sociologists and psychologists. They are writing the literary equivalent of program music. And so rudimentary, uninspired and stagnant has been the sense of what might be done with form in fiction and drama that even when the content isn't simply information, news, it is still peculiarly visible, handier, more exposed. To the extent that novels and plays in America, unlike poetry and painting and music, don't reflect any interesting concern with changes in their form these arts remain prone to assault by interpretation. But programmatic avant-gardism, which has meant mostly experiments with form at the expense of content, is not the only defense against the infestation of art by interpretations, at least I hope not. For this would be to commit art to being perpetually on the run. It also perpetuates the very distinction between form and content which is ultimately an illusion. 
Ideally, it is possible to elude the interpreters in another way, by making works of art whose surface is so unified and clean, whose momentum is so rapid, whose address is so direct, that the work can be just what it is. Is this possible now? It does happen in films, I believe. This is why cinema is the most alive, the most exciting, the most important of all forms of art right now. Perhaps the way one tells how alive a particular form of art is, is by the latitude it gives for making mistakes in it and still being good. For example, a few of the films of Bergman, though cram crammed with lame messages about the modern spirit, thereby inviting interpretations, still triumph over the pretentious intentions of their director. In winter light and the silence, the beauty and visual sophistication of the images subvert before our eyes the callow pseudo-intellectuality of the story and some of the dialogue. The most remarkable instance of this sort of discrepancy is the work of D.W. Griffith. In good films, there is always a directness that entirely frees us from the itch to interpret. Many old Hollywood films, like those of Cukor, Walsh, Hawks and countless other directors, have this liberating, anti-symbolic quality. No less than the best work of the new European directors, like Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player and Jules and Jim, Godard's Breathless and Viva la Vie, Ant Antonioni's La Ventura and Olmi's The Fiances. The Fiance. The fact that films have not been overrun by interpreters is in part due to the simplicity of the newness of cinema as an art. It also owes to the happy accident that films for such a long time were just movies, in other words that they were understood to be part of mass as opposed to high culture, and were left alone by most people with minds. Then too, there is always something other than content in the cinema to grab hold of for those who want to analyse. For the cinema, unlike the novel, possesses a vocabulary of forms, the explicit, complex and discussable technology of camera movements, cutting and composition of the frame that goes into the making of a film. 8. What kind of criticism of commentary on the arts is desirable today? For I am not saying that works of art are ineffable, that they cannot be described or paraphrased. They can be. The question is how? What would criticism look like that would serve the work of art, not usurp its place? What is needed first is more attention to form in art. If excessive, if excessive stress on content provokes the arrogance of interpretation, more extended and more thorough descriptions of form would silence. What is needed is a vocabulary, a descriptive rather than prescriptive vocabulary, for forms. One of the difficulties is that our idea of form is spatial. The Greek metaphors for form are all derived from notions of space. This is why we have a more ready vocabulary of forms for the spatial than for the temporal arts. The exception amongst the temporal arts, of course, is the drama. Perhaps this is because the drama is a narrative, i.e. temporal, form that extends itself visually and pictorially upon a stage. What we don't have yet is a poetics of the novel, any clear notion of the forms of narration. Perhaps film criticism will be the occasion of a breakthrough here, since films are primarily a visual form, yet they are also a subdivision of literature. The best criticism, 
and it is uncommon, is of this sort that dissolves considerations of content into those of form. On film, drama and painting respectively, I can think of Erwin Panofsky's essay Style and Medium in the Motion Pictures, Northrop Frye's essay A Conspectus of Dramatic Genres, Pierre Francastel's essay The Destruction of a Plastic Space. Roland Barthes' book on Racine and his two essays on Robert Grillet are examples of formal analysis applied to the works of a single author. The best essays in Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, like The Scar of Odysseus, are also of this type. An example of formal analysis applied simultaneously to genre and author is Walter Benjamin's essay The Storyteller, Reflections on the Work of Nikolai Leskov. Equally valuable would be criticism would be acts of criticism which would supply a really accurate, sharp, loving description of the appearance of a work of art. This seems even harder to do than formal analysis. Some of Manny Faber's film criticism, Dorothy Van Ghent's essay The Dickens World, A View from Todgers, Randall Jarrell's essay on Walt Whitman, are among the rare examples of what I mean. These are essays which reveal the sensuous surface of art without mucking about in it. 9. Transparence is the highest, most liberating value in art and in criticism today. Transparence means experiencing the luminousness of the thing in itself, of things being what they are. This is the greatness of, for example, the films of Bresson and Uzu and Renoir's The Rule of the Game. Once upon a time, say for Dante, it must have been a revolutionary and creative move to design works of art so that they might be experienced on several levels. Now it is not. It reinforces the principle of redundancy that is the principal affliction of modern life. Once upon a time, a time when high art was scarce, it must have been a revolutionary and creative move to interpret works of art. Now it is not. What we decidedly do not need now is further to assimilate art into thought, or worse yet, art into culture. Interpretation takes the sensory experience of the work of art for granted and proceeds from there. This cannot be taken for granted now. Think of the sheer multiplication of works of art available to every one of us, superadded to the conflicting tastes and odours and sights of the urban environment that bombard our senses. Ours is a culture based on excess, on overproduction. The result is a steady loss of sharpness in our sensory experience. All the conditions of modern life, its material plentitude, its sheer crowdedness, conjoined to dull our sensory faculties, and it is in the light of the condition of our senses, our capacities, rather than those of another age, that the task of the critic must be assessed. What is important now is to recover our senses. We must learn to see more, to hear more, to feel more. Our task is not to find the maximum amount of content in a work of art, much less to squeeze more content out of the work that is already there. Our task is to cut back content so that we can see the thing at all. The aim of all commentary on art should now be to make works of art, and by analogy, our own experience, more 
rather than less real to us. The function of criticism should be to show how it is what it is, even that it is what it is, rather than to show what it means. 10. In place of a hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art.